Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Church. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Grace of Worship. Imagine a man traveling through a desert who comes upon an oasis. In this hot and barren land, he's come to a place to drink and refresh himself. But imagine the oasis as a well. And although the well is plentiful, imagine that he has no way of accessing the water. See, he needs a rope and a bucket to get at it. That is, he needs a means to access the grace of water. Well, this week I'm talking about the church as a means of grace. God who seeks to do good to his children has determined that there are means of grace. That is, we know that we need perseverance, we need courage, we need hope to face the struggles of this world. God knows all of that. He knows that we need his grace. Unless he sustains us, we will fall, we will fail. The world, the flesh, the devil seeks our undoing. Left to our own strength, we won't prevail. We'll fall in doubt and unbelief. The sins that so easily beset us will triumph over us. We'll be like a dog returning to its vomit. We'll partake of the same sins that we had once abandoned, but grace will keep us. God is determined that he's not going to abandon his children. Listen to Philippians 1 verse 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is, God will complete that which he has begun in us. We don't deserve that, it's grace. But it's right here at the promise of grace that a great many Christians misunderstand how that grace comes to us. So many Christians just sit back thinking, you know, just like the analogy of the traveler who comes to an oasis. So imagine the traveler is given a bucket and the instructions as to how to access the water. But instead of taking action, he simply waits for the water to come to him. That is, the means of grace is a means he never uses. In the same way, a great many Christians misunderstand. God does give grace, but he also gives the means whereby we access it. Let me use another analogy. Imagine you're starving. Then you hear of a food bank near you. But imagine the food bank is only open on Tuesdays and Fridays. And furthermore, there's a sign that says it's only open between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. That is, you have to be there between those hours to receive the grace. You have to meet the qualifications. Now, to be sure, it would be a mistake to think that if you met the qualifications, that is, if you showed up at noon on Tuesday and you received all the food that you needed, it would be a mistake to imagine that by meeting the qualifications, you had earned the food. No, no, you did not. It was all of grace. You didn't earn or deserve it. But by meeting the qualifications, you put yourself into the place where grace was to be accessed. So it is the means of grace. God has determined the means whereby grace is found. I've been talking about the indispensable role of the local church to our faith. Church isn't optional. Rather, it's the means that God has chosen to allow his grace to keep us and sustain us, to encourage us, and to bring us hope. And yesterday, I spoke about the means of grace in the preached Word of God. I said that a sermon isn't a TED Talk 
or five points on getting healthy self-esteem or on the means of maintaining healthy relationships. Sermons, when they're the thing the Bible speaks about, are an exposition of the text of Scripture. Sermons examine the words and the sentences and the paragraphs of the Bible. They make the Bible's meaning clear. They show us how to apply it. Sermons encourage, they rebuke, they arrest things that are evil within us. They urge us to the goal of Christ-likeness. Regularly living under that kind of preaching is the means that God has chosen to sustain our faith. So today I want to talk about worship, and I know immediately many of us will think I'm going to talk about singing. And yeah, I am going to talk about singing, but I'm going to talk about a great deal more. But before we talk about what constitutes genuine God-centered worship, let's get back and define the word. Listen to what Jesus said about it in John 4, 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Here's how I understand those words. First, the context is important. There was a woman that Jesus was speaking with, and she had a question. She was a Samaritan. And we know that the Samaritans thought the temple of God should be located on Mount Gerizim. And in contrast, the Jews said that the temple should be located in Jerusalem. And she wants to know, what's the right place to worship God? And Jesus responds in a very straightforward manner. Salvation, he says, is of the Jews. The Jews have it right. The temple was meant to be built in Jerusalem. But, says Jesus, a time is coming. Indeed, let me add here that right now we're living in the time that Jesus spoke of. In this time, location would not be the issue. The issue would be worshiping in spirit and in truth. Well, what are those two words? What is it to worship in spirit? Well, I think Jesus means that we worship when we are urged on by the Holy Spirit. But in this, the heart enters into the act. I mean here that the heart must be made regenerate so that the center of our affections, the things that we love and that we hate, the things that we believe, that there's no higher joy in all of these things than to ascribe greatness to God. Look, if you've never been born of the Spirit, you might not understand that your heart was made for God. And it's only when we pay homage to God, when mind and emotion and strength are God-directed, and the pleasure of communing with God is expressed in worship. And Jesus also said that we've got to worship in truth, and worshiping in truth has to mean that our worship is in full harmony with the truth that's revealed in the Bible. The great problem with some worship today is that it seeks to play on the emotions without reveling in the doctrines that are borne out in the Bible. You know, I recently watched a documentary of a very famous church whose worship music is being played everywhere, and my heart ached as I watched. So much sin, so little truth, so much bad theology. What really got me were the testimonials of people who had been in that church for a while and were no longer there. And they talked about the emotional connection they had once had with God. And then someone said, I came to realize that it might have been an experience with God, but it also was the chord progression of the songs that were designed to awaken human emotion in me. She said, I came to realize that those chord progressions, well, if I had heard them, I would have cried at a movie. 
and I would have cried also at a worship service. Those songs were designed, she said, to manipulate my emotions. And once I recognized that, everything just changed. Well, I was stunned as I watched that. Now, to be sure, music is a gift of God. It's designed to awaken emotions. But like every gift of God, what is good can also be used for bad, to manipulate. So what's the difference between awakening our emotions to help us concentrate on God and manipulating our emotions to get a certain response? I'm going to come back to that. But before we get back there, I want to talk about the aspects of corporate worship that we find in the New Testament. And then after that, let's look at how this is grace to us. When we worship God, God uses that worship to bring good into our lives. So let me say this. God determines how he is to be worshiped. And that was true in both the First Testament and in the Final Testament. So we might remember Leviticus chapter 10. Let me read chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You know, this passage is, you know, quite surprising to some people. So these two men died simply because, well, they had put fire for an offering before God that wasn't approved by him. Apparently, yeah, God has determined that he is to be worshipped in the way that he has designed. Ah, But the New Testament, you know, sacrificial offerings have been fulfilled in Christ. We're no longer required to do all those things that the Old Testament requires us to do. Yeah, that's true. But the New Testament also tells us how God is to be worshipped. Now, yesterday, we saw that God demands that his word be preached. 2 Timothy 4, 1-2. Paul writing, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. God demands that preaching be a part of our worship. Anything else? Yeah. 1 Corinthians 4.13, Paul writes, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Notice that Paul adds something here. Yes, Scripture is to be taught, but Scripture is also to be read. This month, Back to the Bible Canada's focus is on our international ministry partnerships. We want to share the great thing God is doing beyond our borders. The goal for our international ministry efforts in February is to raise $100,000, and we invite you to prayerfully consider how you could help. This month, your gift can send a pastor in India or Sri Lanka to a Bible teaching conference. Just $50 covers all the costs associated. Or you could choose to participate in our $25,000 International Match Campaign. Every dollar you give will be matched up to $25,000. And all of this goes to support international partnership efforts supplying Bible teaching resources, Bible audio programming, and Bible teaching conferences. Your generosity makes it all possible. For more information or to give, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
I want you to imagine that every single one of our New Testament books are not only addressed to a local church, but at some point in time were read to a local church. I mean, the entire book was read without comment, without interruption. So for example, the Christian church in Philippi, they'd been partnering with Paul to reach the Roman world for Christ, and then they heard that Paul had been arrested. He was in prison in Rome. Since Rome didn't provide for the prisoners' needs, the church quickly held an offering. Then they sent one of their own, a man named Epaphrodites, to go all the way to Rome and to supply Paul with everything he needed. While Epaphrodites was there, Paul wrote a thank you letter back to be sent with this brother. But of course, it was so much more than a thank you letter, wasn't it? It was a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit. That letter was sacred scripture. Imagine now Epaphrodites is back. Everyone wants to know how Paul is doing. And Epaphrodites says, well, wait, I'm going to read you Paul's letter when we meet next Sunday in worship. So Sunday arrives. Prayers are spoken. Songs are sung. Then comes the time for the public reading of Scripture. And what happens? Well, I imagine Epaphrodites is the man who reads the Scripture. And in this case, it's new Scripture. It's Scripture just hot off the press. The apostle, the man directly trained by Jesus, has been given a message from the Holy Spirit. Everyone becomes quiet, and then without comment, Epaphrodites reads the entire book. You know, perhaps as he reads, we can hear people saying, Amen. So what's happening? Well, as the scripture is being read, the congregation is worshiping. They're being drawn near to God in spirit and in truth. Every New Testament book was read to a congregation during worship. Reading scripture is therefore a part of worship. Reading scripture and simply hearing it being read in the congregation is what God desires as we worship him. It's a part of worshiping in spirit and truth. Well, what else? Well, prayers. Isaiah 56 verse 7, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And Jesus reiterated that when he was driving the money changers out of the temple. He said, my house shall be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. So how did the New Testament deal with that? Well, listen to 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, so much in that. Paul's writing to Timothy, Pastor Timothy, the man giving leadership to the church in Ephesus. He's writing to instruct Pastor Timothy to teach the church how they are to behave when they meet together. And here, he's teaching them how to pray. Your prayers need to be made with requests. You need to be praying for everyone. Yeah, of course, pray for the needs of the people who are in your congregation. You know, in response to that, many churches have a prayer altar where prayers are available to anyone who needs prayer. But they also need to pray for everyone. They need to pray for political leaders. They need to pray for the decisions that are made in government that lead to believers being free from persecution. They need to pray that their witness in their wider community will be dignified. They need to pray for the salvation of the lost. Public praying is a part of worship. Well, there are more aspects of worship in the New Testament. 
Acts 2.42, we're told that the very first church in Jerusalem, they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, that would be preaching, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. So the breaking of bread is no doubt a reference to communion, the Lord's table. That also is a part of worship. See, I'm aware that there has been among different churches a great deal of controversy about the Lord's table. You know, some of you who know your church history well know that at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, one source of conflict among Reformed churches was a conflict over the meaning of the Lord's table. It was Martin Luther who believed in a concept, we're going to call it consubstantiation. He believed that Jesus was spiritually present to the elements of communion, the wine and the bread. Hence, the receiving of communion was spiritually receiving Christ. On the other hand, another reformer, a man named Ulrich Zwingli, just as strongly believed that the communion meal was no more than a memorial meal in which the church remembered the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, I'm not here to resolve this debate, but I do think that we need to remember that Jesus commanded his church to continually celebrate his death and resurrection in the communion meal. I'm also convinced that the Lord's table is a means of grace whereby through it we are called upon to draw near to God through Jesus. What else should we do when we meet together for worship? Well, as I've said before, singing. What a wonderful gift of God it is for believers in Christ to sing together. Let me give you a First Testament example of just that. It's 2 Chronicles 5, 12 to 14. I love this. It says that all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise of the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, the house the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. (laughs) That was a glorious worship experience. Now we're enjoined by the Lord to make music. Psalm 33 not only tells us to sing a new song to the Lord, but it also calls upon us to play skillfully on the strings on instruments. Work at making the music, music that excites the soul. Make it music that combines spirit and truth. And in this regard, let's then go to the New Testament who instructs us what we are to sing. Twice, Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, we're told to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Look at those three categories. First, psalms, that's a reference to the 150 psalms that are found in the Bible. Apparently, it wasn't just the hymn book of ancient Israel. It was also the hymn book of the first church. We're well served, indeed, we're commanded to put the Psalms into songs that the church can sing. Second, we're to sing hymns. Now, you should immediately know that singing of hymns is not what we think of them today. For the hymns that we have today in hymn books, well, that hadn't been invented when Paul wrote those words. He couldn't mean singing hymns as we think of them today. I've spoken about this elsewhere, but there are incidences in the writings of Paul where he's clearly quoting hymns of the early church. And in each of these incidences, 
The hymns are a reference to singing the great doctrinal truths of the gospel and of our faith. So why is that important? (laughs) Well, it's important because you remember when you sing. You might try to memorize a text of scripture, but I promise you this, if you sing it, you'll remember it. We should sing about the attributes of God. We should sing about the Trinity. We should sing about the two natures of Christ. We should sing about the authority of our Bibles. We should sing about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, and we should sing about our Lord's soon return. That's what it means to sing hymns. And finally, we should sing spiritual songs, and these songs are songs of adoration and exaltation of our great Savior. You know, one of the great problems with singing today is not that it excites emotions. I I want it to do that. One of the problems is that we have sung in only one of the three categories, and that's the spiritual songs. We've neglected the Psalms, and we've neglected singing the great doctrinal truths of our faith. We need to recapture all three categories, for our souls were made for that. Well, now, I've tried to recapture what we must do when we meet together for worship. We must sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. We must celebrate the Lord's table. We must pray together so that our worship is an experience of much praying together. We must silence ourselves then when we hear Scripture being read without comment or explanation. And finally, we must hear the Scriptures being preached so that the Scriptures, as they are explained, are also applied, and we are urged to repent and trust Christ anew. That's God's means of grace to the church. God wants us to be held in his sustaining hands so that we don't give way to the temptations of the evil one and that we don't fall into despair and hopelessness. Left to our own devices, we won't grow. But God has given us a means of grace, and that means of grace is the worship of the local church. Thanks, John, so much for your message. You know, I'm wondering, how should I respond to someone who says they are a believer, a follower of Jesus, but haven't been to church in years? Yeah, and that's really the sad thing. There are so many people that are, in fact, that. So let's just be honest. The best thing that I can say is that you're a disobedient Christian. The worst thing that I can say is that you have abandoned the commands of Christ and are now on your own path. So this is very serious business. And uh, at the same time, I want to make it a welcome thing. I want to say there are things, there are graces there that you desperately need and that can be given. You know, I talked about worship today. That's an important part. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Church, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to partnership in the work of the gospel. No single individual congregation or mission is enough to fulfill the Great Commission. Jesus gathered followers to train and commission. Paul ventured throughout the Mediterranean with the news of Jesus Christ, but he didn't travel alone. He cultivated partnerships to do the great work. This month, we offer a resource called Companions for the Gospel. This laminated reference guide maps out Paul's missionary journey in Acts and highlights the men and women who work together with Paul in mission. Companions for the Gospel is our free Bible resource gift to you this month. 
Simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your copy or to make a gift to the national or global efforts of Back to the Bible Canada.